Entrepreneurs Will Save the World. We chat with successful entrepreneurs who share their journey and the lessons learned along the way. The Ad Valued Entrepreneurs podcast is edutaining, leaving you with actionable advice to transform your life and create a thriving business that aligns with your values and goals. Our conversations are for entrepreneurs who want more freedom and fulfillment from their work so they can live the life they desire. We focus on the mindset shifts entrepreneurs make to increase their influence and impact in the world. It's time for you to add value. This episode is brought to you by the Add Valued Entrepreneurs Podcast. We would love for you to like, share, and leave a review of our show. Subscribe on YouTube. Most importantly, help us spread the word about the great stories being shared on our show. My guest today is Polly Latovsky. Polly, when she was 37 years old, sold everything she owned, left her home in Colorado, and started heading west on foot to become the first woman to walk around the world. She walked across four continents, 22 countries, and over 14,000 miles. Over her five years of walking and living one step out of her comfort zone every day, she developed a set of skills in goal setting, creating a clear vision, problem solving, adapting to culture, and team building. When she wrote her book about walking around the world and got ripped off in the publishing world, that launched her into taking these newly developed skills to start a new business, My Word Publishing, a company that helps authors professionally self-publish their books while maintaining 100% of all their rights. My Word Publishing has now grown into a publishing library of over 700 books, 10 publishing consultants, 35 editors, and represents authors from 14 countries. Polly and Robert talk about her journey, literally around the world, and how that journey inspired her to start her company, to help others tell their stories without being pickpocketed or robbed by companies making promises they can't fulfill. Authors have rights, and they need to protect them, and she's creating standards and a team of coaches to help elevate the world of self-publishing. Well, Polly, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to just learn about your literal journey and your journey as an entrepreneur and just all the ways that uh, you're impacting the world. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I'm a huge dream advocator and lover of dreams and, and visions and, and your dream was planted as a young lady. Yeah. I was 12 years old when, you know, and I really was living this idyllic childhood, you know, I hate to brag about that when people, you know, woe is me. That wasn't me. Uh, ideally childhood growing up in Minneapolis in the 60s and uh, 70s primarily. And it was when the neighborhood kids would all sort of raise each other and play games and make up games and get in fights about the rules and start over and climb trees and whatever. And when I was 12, I saw this article in the newspaper about a man walking around the world. And I was always curious about the world and how it ticks and why are kids living a different 12-year-old's life than me and my buddies, right? So when I saw this article in the paper and it was a man, picture of a man walking down Highway 6 in Colorado and he was pulling a buggy behind him and the caption says, David Kunst, walking down Highway 6 in Colorado on his way home to Minnesota to become the first man to walk around the world. I was like, wow, I didn't know you could think of such a thing if you were from Minnesota. You know, it was, it was absurd. No one does that. No one goes beyond the neighborhood, right? But it really, really did intrigue me that the simple 
singular movement of putting one foot in front of the other, that when chained together, they can become so powerful that they can serve as your transportation around the world across borders and up through different kinds of terrain and through different cultures and peoples and histories and ideas and religions and languages. And I just thought, well, I could do that. I could put one foot in front of the other. You know what I did? I swear to God, I went outside and I walked around the house for three hours. I was like, yeah, I could do that. <laughs> problem so that's how I, it started i love that right walk around the house for three hours like i can make it around the world i yeah, can make it around the house the world. <laughs> our our concepts of time and space are so are so limited uh, by our yeah, experience well, thank god that the children's brain even into your teens and 20s you're uh there is some kind of beauty to um I don't even know how to phrase it other than to say a naivety. I mean, how many people have said, boy, if I had any idea what I was getting myself into, I wouldn't have done it, you know? And there's a truth to that. There's something true to the naivety, um, the sort of blindness of what you're going into. I, I was as prepared as I as you could ever be, frankly, going into it. But I would say the same thing. <laughs> Boy, I don't know if I'd have done it if I knew exactly what I was getting into. Um, <laughs> would would any of us do some of the things we do if we knew? And <laughs> you're like, bring it, you know. And when you're 20, you go, bring it on. Now yeah. you're heading into 50s. You're like, eh, if I can get home by nine, <laughs> we'll think about it. <laughs> well, I love that you mentioned the child's brain because so many times it comes up that you know we need. The mindset shifts necessary for us adults really needs to go back to our childhood to to find that imagination, to find that innocence, really, to find that willingness that anything is possible. And and somewhere in our teens and adulthood, we let go of that anything is possible and we start to focus on, well, that's not, you know, well, that'll never work. Right. Well, that's impossible. Well, that's a that's a great idea, but you can never do it. Right. And all those our adult brain replaces that childhood possibility. And so I love that you held on to your childhood possibility and and you made it a reality for yourself in your 20s. So let's talk about making that happen. Well, over the course of 20 plus years, life's journey had brought me to living in Colorado. And there was a point where I was living in Vail in the mountains. And frankly, I was having a good life. You know, it's not the life about living there, right? Uh, so I had a, I had a job or four, uh, as you do in those towns, and uh, got myself a little condo. I was living all right, but that dream just kept haunting me. I got to go do this. And frankly, it, it has to be done sooner rather than later, just due to aging and you know i now know 2020 vision i now know that the world and global events would start swirling on around me um but i didn't know that at the time i was thinking age and um sort of mental and intellectual strength as well i don't know i i think if there's i knew even when i was 12 that i had to have enough world experience that i could take on what the world was going to throw at me but i physically had to be young enough to take the journey right apparently for me that age was 37. <laughs> although some people you know i i really stand by it too because if i had gone and done that when my 20s i would have um, probably made some really stupid decisions i mean i made stupid decisions anyway <laughs> i would have made more and and um 
and, and tougher ones to get out of. For example, I know that in my 20s, because I went traveling, randomly backpacker traveling, you know, that subculture. Uh, I did that in my 20s. And I did have that attitude like, hey, maybe I'll get on that boat and sail up to Asia from like Australia, you know? Yeah, I could do that. A lot of people were talking about it, yeah, but they were men, you know, catching a sailboat and heading up through Southeast Asia. Yeah, why can't I do that? Oh, that sounds like a great idea, you know? That's different for a woman getting on a boat where I know nothing about sailing into the waters that frankly is the biggest pirated area in the world. And I would have done that in my 20s. And then so by the time I was doing my walk around the world, I was like, no, nope, that's not a good decision. And in fact, <laughs> I'll tell you this, um, jumping ahead, if you don't mind, um, people now sort of uh, see me as this, this matriarch of the long distance walker. So often people wanting to do things similar to this will reach out. And if they're local, we go have coffee. And I don't like to give advice because it's, it's a different journey for everyone. But sometimes I simply say, this is all I got for you, is take every single opportunity that you can to not be stupid. <laughs> right and so as you know as you get older you start realizing that so i would have gone hmm is that a good decision to get on a sailboat through the most pirated area in the world with a bunch of men that i don't speak their language hmm is that a good idea i think that's stupid and then not do it right so we make thousands of decisions every single day we're going to make bad decisions but the really stupid ones, could you just please pause for a moment and then just say, is this a smart thing to do? Because there is that balancing line, right? Is it stupid or is it adventurous? Well, that's stupid, okay? <laughs> Maybe I'll go hiking in North Korea. Hmm, probably stupid. <laughs> That doesn't the, fall into adventurous. The that problem is in your 20s, it seems like wisdom. And <laughs> it's not until your 30s or 40s you realize, oh, that, that's so stupid. Like, like stupid and wisdom shift. <laughs> yes. Yeah. They're, they're walking that line and then they fall into the, hopefully, the wisdom category. Absolutely. Um, so, so you started your walk in Vail. So, yeah, it was August 1st, 1999, with 100 friends and family members that I started heading west. And I remember after a mile, they all got a ride home. They were all waiting on this corner, waiting for the shuttle bus to go home. The one mile along a lovely... At least going at least going west, it was downhill. <laughs> yes, it was. And it was a lovely walk along the creek. So anyway, I kept going and I headed west. And I walked down Highway 6 to Glenwood Springs, and I turned left to Aspen up over the Maroon Bells and uh, aimed for the Four Corners and uh, in, into, I, I caught Route 66 from Flagstaff right through California. And um, I'll tell you that from day one, I was so surprised at how people came out of the woodwork to help me, you know. And at first I thought it was just because I was near home. So friends were calling saying, hey, I'll swing out there this weekend and grab some lunch or whatever. I saw you in the newspaper. I'll pick up your campground fee or whatever. And that continued then well into Arizona, California, and in fact, all the way around the world. So. Um, people 
at truck stops, convenience stores, mountain roads, um, desert roads. It really just came out to help me with whatever uh, was needed. Um, there was a stretch in Australia where there's nothing for 350 miles. When I need nothing, there ain't nothing, right? <laughs> so the truckers were on that road every day and there's one road that goes around Australia, right? So the truckers figured out who I was and, and uh, started like just helping me out because they're on the road every day, that's their gig. So they would start bringing out food and Gatorade and ice cream bars and water and just, but they could never stop. That was the problem. They can't stop those big rigs on, right? So they would just drive by and slow down and throw things out the window. So I was like <laughs> jumping and, and so that was, uh, I mean, everyone really around the world really started helping me. By the time I got to Australia, um, I met this woman on the side of the road about my fourth day in and she was the member she was the president of the local lions club and she asked what i was doing there because you know she heard my funny accent so i told her what i was doing and she said, oh the lions clubs have got to get involved with this so she got the lions clubs involved and they started helping me taking care of me doing fundraising for me fundraising for breast cancer which was my cause as i was doing this and and there was a beneficiary in each country that i walked through so they Lions Club started passing me town to town to town to town around the world, having fundraising events every night, and of course spoiling me silly with food and and lodging and throwing events. And so at this point now, I wasn't spending any money, and they were really helping with fundraising and and awareness campaigns. And then the Lions Club became an official international sponsor. That means I could plan further in advance and they would pass me around the world. And uh, when I was in then in Malaysia where the Lions Clubs were very, very involved, that's when 9-11 struck. Mm. And so uh, it was a relief to me and to my parents, to everyone I knew that as 9-11 had broke out in the immediate aftermath of all of that, Okay, war in Afghanistan, the buildup to war in Iraq, etc. I then had that solid foundation under my feet as they continued to support me village to village. So that was kind of the story, the big turning points. Yeah, you know? that's so good. Well, yeah. just incredible that people start hearing the story and, and just want to get involved in, in some small way in supporting you um, and, and making connections. And so the power the power of those connections, the power of the power of story um, is, is really amplified in, in your story. And so that's, that's good. I, and I love that you share that the good of the world, right? That everywhere you went, there were people that said, Oh, that's exciting. How can we help? And it really was. And, you know, prior to leaving, so I was planning this journey, you know, I've been thinking about it forever, but I was really seriously planning for three years. And there's only so much you can plan, right? <laughs> right. Um, right. Um, you know, you're not going to plan where you're going to stay every night. It's not a vacation. Um, but I can plan a general route and all the rest of it. And visas and how do I take care of myself health-wise and safety-wise and things like that. One of the things that I really practiced was the inevitability of becoming lonely. 
I was convinced that that was going to be the case. And so I was like, how can I deal with this? And um, one thing I did discover about myself on a little side note is that if you're sort of half extrovert, half introvert, you're an omnivert. And I guess that's where I am, right? So I've got to measure how much I'm around people. I can't be around people constantly and I can't be alone constantly, but I didn't know that at the time. But anyway, so I'm practicing being alone in situ. So on the weekends, I would just go march up. Yeah, I was living in Vail, of course. I just march out my door and up the hill, up in the mountains and just camp out and just get used to being alone in strange noises and getting comfortable with that, you know, lifestyle, assuming, swear to you, my thoughts in that era of planning were that I was just, no one would care about, you know, me doing this, but for whatever reason, I need to follow this inner compass in my head and go out and start walking around the world and do my thing. And if someone asked, I would tell them, um, otherwise, no one would care, and I'd get home, and I'd just carry on and get a silly job, and that would be that. First of all, I never even thought about planning for the polar opposite, which was the constant attention <laughs> and the overwhelming crowds of people that would be walking with me every day, all day, in the breakfast, lunch, dinner, and morning, noon, and night which it was in Malaysia, was hundreds of people walking with me every day. It's like the whole village would come out and walk with me. Wow. And it, I was like Forrest Gump out there, right? <laughs> I never even thought about that. So I wasn't prepared. It was, a, it was, I was blindsided by this. So here I was, you know, ready for this onslaught of loneliness. And I get this onslaught of overwhelming. I mean, people would <laughs> swear to you, but I, we weren't standing on a street corner and people would lift me by my elbows and walk me across the streets. Like my feet are not even touching the ground. So it was over uber hospitality. Let's call it that uber hospitality. That's and so exciting though. Like, I mean, it's interesting that you actually planned for loneliness. Like you were actually trying to prepare yourself to, to be prepared to you know, be spending days and weeks and months alone. And then, and then the exact opposite happens, yeah. which is which is typically how it goes, right? We make a plan, and and of course, the minute we take the first five steps, well, the plan's out the window because everything's happening different when you when you actually yeah. put it into practice. The theme is like 2020's theme was pivot, <laughs> right? It was that changing well, plans immediately, and that's I mean, and that's the reality for entrepreneurs. It's the reality in in any endeavor that you're doing, you could spend all your time perfecting a plan. And the minute you do step one, all of a sudden you realize, oh, those great plans I made for step two through 10 and 10 through 20 don't apply anymore. Everything's everything's different. And so one of my favorite quotes is Mike Tyson's, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. <laughs> so it's, right. it's very true. Yes, so let's sum, up, let's sum up the walk. How many how many years, how many countries, how many so miles? I finished up on July 30th, 2004, which was one day shy of five years. I walked 14,124 miles, 22 countries, 29 pairs of shoes, and raised at the time, it was $250,000 in 13 currencies. A lot of countries, you know, they don't take 
And well, they didn't have a breast cancer organization. So a lot, I didn't do fundraising in every country. Um, yeah. And then it was, of course, in their currency and this kind of thing. And I say at that time, because it, we went on to do more fundraising through the years. Once I landed home and worked with breast cancer organizations here locally. So. Well, that's yeah. fantastic. <laughs> I yeah, mean, yeah. that's pretty incredible. So now it's really wanting to tell the story that leads to the next step in, in, in your own entrepreneurial journey is this idea, of course, writing the book, writing the story and, and sharing it with the world. Yeah. Well, when I landed, I mean, I ain't no independent wealthy person. I ain't got no trust fund. So it's like I landed and went, Oh, I got to find a place to live. I got to get a job, right? Got to get or a car. Call the Malaysians and ask them to send food. <laughs> yes, I should have. Um, so a friend of mine invited me to stay at her place for three months while I could get on my feet. And of course I didn't have any clothes. So I'd go to a job interview and she'd have to lend me clothes <laughs> too big on me and all the rest of it. Um, you know, it, it's funny. Um, this was now 2004 and 2005 and that's when they were giving mortgages to anybody and everybody. <laughs> it's like, um, well, do you have a job? Well, not yet, but I plan on getting one. Good enough. <laughs> right. So I was grateful for that era in which I landed. So I did get a little condo, a little 600 square foot condo, teeny weeny place. And um, I started writing my book, but of course I was working too. And I was working two jobs and, and um, doing speaking engagements as well, randomly. So I was working hard. So I didn't have time to really just sit down and write the book. And so it took me six years to write the book. And I was embarrassed at the time that it was taking me so long. But there was just, you know, it was a life's reality check going on there, right? And once it was done, I was grateful that it took me that long. Because if I had sat down right after I finished and wrote the book, it would be a very different book. It took time and space to figure out what those lessons actually were. And even now, let me see, I finished uh, 2004. So gosh, what's that 18 years later now? Um, I'm really learning those lessons that in fact, I now take with me every day, right? Um, and what did I learn on the road versus what I would have learned anyway over the five-year lifespan that anyone in that age group would learn, right? What did that walk give me for lessons. So I'm grateful that it took me that long. So I wrote the book in six years. And then I had to start finding a publisher because that's how it worked then. Right. I mean, oh, so long ago. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I don't want to pretend that these publishers were throwing themselves at me. But I, I was talking to two different, more traditional publishers. Right. Traditional meaning they give you an advance and you write the book, and they own all the rights, blah, blah, blah. So I was going this route, and both of those publishers that I was talking to said to me, but there's no romance in here. Could you throw some romance in? I'm like, what, you want me to just make it up? <laughs> yes. And they're yes, like, we well, did. yeah, if you could. I mean, embellish. I was like, wow. And it just hit me that, wow, I'm going to have no control whatsoever if I continue down this route. So 
I decided to look into this relatively new thing called self-publishing. And I went with a small independent publisher. They call it hybrid publishing, partner publishing. It's like, well, isn't that swell? I like those terms. Those are lovely terms. And we'll sit at coffee shops and drink chai and talk about the development. And um, it wasn't anything like that. Now, everyone has always told me, you got to keep your copyrights. Whatever happens, you got to keep your copyrights. I'm like, all right, already. I'll keep my copyrights. So with this small independent publisher, I said, well, can I keep my copyrights? Yeah, sure. That's no problem. I was like, well, that was easy. Now, what I didn't know and what no one had ever mentioned and what I preach, I mean, preach it, girl. There are a lot more rights than copyrights that you need to maintain and control. The biggest of them are your sales rights and distribution rights. So what that means is if I have sales and distribution rights, all of the sales go through me straight into my bank account. Okay. If they have sales and distribution rights, it goes through them. And then every six months, they pay me a royalty check to which they have taken a portion. Most okay? of them. What was that? I said most of, not a portion. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And then there are um, foreign rights and digital rights and all the rest of it. I didn't own any of that, didn't even know to ask. I knew to ask about copyrights. It's all people know. Well, I found out way too late because a, a publishing contract is very much like a marriage. You sign on. And there's no exit date, right? There's no end date, right? Although I suspect where society is going, that's not too far down the road. It's like, I take thee for seven years, <laughs> right? Maybe. So a publishing contract is, is um, a sign-on, no sign-off. And it's pretty much a one-way street. So those are all lessons that I learned too late. And um, they own pretty much all the rights. I own copyrights, which were useless if I didn't have everything else. So I learned a lot of horrible, horrible lessons about uh, sort of final decision-making, creative decisions, um, blah, blah, blah. And I had to get out of that contract. And so I go to this contract attorney and they try to get her, you know, sign these um, certified letters. And she's not. So finally, the attorney says to me, you have a choice. You can either work things out with this publisher or you can run for your life. And I'm like, OK, I'll run for my life. So I ran for my life, essentially breaking the contract. And I said, now what? I have to decide how I'm going to publish this book. I don't want to go with the big publisher. I don't want to go with this independent publisher or hybrid partner publishing. I beg people not to go that route, right? Bottom line today, there's nothing that they can do for you that you can't do yourself and own 100% of everything, right? That's the bottom line. Nothing. So don't do it. So I go to this course. It's a weekend class about how to self-publish a book, right? So I walk into this class and I'm like sitting in the back, right? All full of attitude. I'm like, convince me. <laughs> convince me. So these people start talking about, and remember, these are early years of self-publishing, okay? And um, by lunchtime, I was so intrigued that now I'm up front 
And I'm this person, like, one more question, one more question, just, just one more question. I just follow up question. What? I'm this asshole. So, <laughs> so it was as if in that class, my world just all came together. All the skill sets I had developed from the weird side jobs I'd had and the creative jobs. And now I have this story to tell that had been essentially hijacked by someone that owned rights to my life story. It's horrible. So I was like, oh, I'm doing this. So I uh, dove into republishing my own book under my own publishing company and made a lot more mistakes because that's my mojo. <laughs> you know, some people learn from reading. Some people learn from doing. I learned from making the worst mistakes that are the most expensive. Well, most people but, learn from doing by making the mistakes. So it's okay. That's, okay, that's, that's, that's part of what doing does. <laughs> well, I think if you look it up, my face is there. <laughs> You're not alone, I promise. No kidding, right? So um, I republished my book and after making all the mistakes. And, and um, frankly, it's gone on to do quite well. It's won six national awards and, and uh, blah, blah, blah. So then my friends start sending their friends to me. Holly, can you help so-and-so with their book? Yeah, meet me at the Panera. Now I've got flow charts and checklists and, and a, a seriously list who not to work with. I've already made all these mistakes, right? I'm not playing political correctness. Do not work with this, but work with this person. And here's the checklist. So now I start doing that for like two years. I'm meeting people at the Paneras three times a week. So then I'm having coffee. True story is I'm standing here. I'm having coffee with a friend of mine in the business. She would do the layout design of books, right? So I was sending a lot of people to her. I said, you know, I'm thinking about starting a business where I manage an author's entire project, but I maintain no ownership rights at all. Because people are making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. Expensive, dangerous. I mean, this person essentially hijacked my life story. How horrible is that? So she says, oh, God, you should do that because they're asking me these questions and I don't want to answer them. So. <laughs> so the next person that called me, remember, they're calling me all the time anyway. So this woman calls up. She says, I understand you can help me self-publish my book. And I said, yeah, meet me at the Panera. I have a proposal for you. So I meet her at the Panera with all my graphs and charts and checklists and all this. And I said, listen, I've been doing this for a couple of years, plus my own book. So add another year to that. And now I'm thinking about managing an author's project, but I've never done it for someone else. Would you be my first beta test girl so I can test this whole system I've got? She says, yeah, sure. That was our first book. That was 2012, 10 years ago. Her book, that book went on to become a movie at the Hallmark Channel and win a national award. It was a romantic comedy. And that was our first book. Nice. We will be right back after this short break. This episode is sponsored by the newly released book, Dream Life Planner, Move from Tired and Overwhelmed to Free and Empowered by Noelle L. Peterson, available on Amazon, or you can order a personalized signed copy at empower, E-M-P-O-W-E-R, 2, dream.com. 
That's empower2dream.com. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe, leave a review, tell your friends. Welcome back. Let's get back to more greatness. Well, I just have to definitely jump in here because this is this is my favorite thing for for people who don't think they can be entrepreneurs and don't think that they could they can serve people and you recognize that hey these people are asking me for this solution they're mm-hmm. they're asking me to help solve this problem and and that's one of the quickest clues right what are what are people asking you for help for what are people asking you for advice for and, and you have the opportunity to stop giving the advice for free because when you give it for free they don't listen anyway to start charging them and when you start charging them guess what they're paying for it they might actually do what you're telling them to do <laughs> and so <laughs> you you not only become a business person and own your own business and have control over your own life but you actually help them take bigger steps because when people are paying for it they see the value in it and they follow up and they do the things that they need to do in a better way than they ever would based on advice i don't know why it works that way but that's what happens and so being an entrepreneur is actually a huge blessing to those people because more books are being published because you're doing it and charging for it than ever would have been published by you you just giving free advice yes and i think an entrepreneur's mind is almost like that, you know, if you've ever been around a mother of like toddlers or something, I swear they have eyes in the back of their head, don't they? You know, they're like, stop it, stop eating that. You're like, how did you see that, right? They are on high alert and all the senses are on high alert. And that's what it is like, I think being an entrepreneur, you can't help it, you see opportunity everywhere and you almost have to calm it down because you know like no just stay in your lane here for a second <laughs> right well there's an opportunity over here oh there's an opportunity so there's a big hole in the marketplace over here and <laughs> you have to sometimes just calm down and stay in your lane mm, um love that so, so now now your company has a team of consultants and you're actually training and certifying um, self-publishing consultants. And so you're actually trying to revolutionize the self-publishing world with a group of people that understands the standards, understands the, the guidelines and is basically creating a, a boundaries, right? Keep people in their lane because, because you're putting up some guardrails. Yeah, that's a nice way to put that. I may steal that from you. You're welcome, too. Um, <laughs> yeah, so now we have 10 trained publishing consultants, otherwise known as a publishing coach. And we have like 35 editors and layout designers, cover designers, the whole thing, right? Because we don't do projects, right? Or, or packages, I'm sorry. We don't do packages. Like the Emerald package includes A, B, and C. My thought on that package thing so they just never work, right? You go to the IHOP and you're like, I'll have the number one, but I don't want the bacon. I want the sausage instead. And I want three pancakes instead of four. And I went, da, 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 right? So it just doesn't work. Let's be unique in that way and that we customize everyone's project, right? So even my uh, business coach and people around me will say, it's easier if you do packages. Yeah, well, no, you know. And that's, I guess, one thing about entrepreneurship is that we just because it's available doesn't mean it's right. Ooh. And right, 
I mean, everyone these days is like, well, you have to do a pre a pre-order on your book. And I'm like, no, you don't. <laughs> so um, you can sort of stand alone. I, I think I stand alone on panels sometimes when they all say one thing and I say the other. And I think one reason is because I'm always thinking about our authors. You know, the, here's an example of, of really how you can stand alone and don't be shy to stand alone. Is everyone in my world, publishing world, says, you have to start marketing your book six, eight months in advance. And I'm like, are you out of your mind? First of all, <laughs> I mean, A, that'd be great. The real, here's the reality check. People are writing for the first time, going through editing for the first time, which is a brand new, you know, drama. <laughs> okay. And then you're yes. publishing yes, for the it first is. time, right? <laughs> then you're publishing and then you're marketing for the first time. And then you have kids and a job and a life. And you now want to toss on a whole marketing plan on top of all of this stuff. So I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't agree. Okay. That'd be great. But let's talk realistic for our authors. Knock it off. Stop putting that pressure on them. And, you know, I think of me before I knew anything, my book came out. Then I started looking at, all right, God, I got this book. Now, how do I start marketing it? And frankly, I've sold more books than anyone I know. It doesn't have to work that way. So I will stand alone on that panel that says you have to start marketing your book six months in advance. I'll go easy on them. I'll go easy on people. So. Well, and I love that you that you you recognize that every book is unique. Every author is unique. And so the 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 things that they need to be able to put all the pieces together will be unique every time. And so why not honor that? And sure, do all do some of the some of the projects come out exactly the same and come out including all the same exact steps? Maybe, but they don't have to pigeonhole themselves into your predetermined, predetermined packages and, and have things in the package, which typically, right, that we we order the photo package and we stick the envelope of the photos that we bought, you know, got because they were included in the package and they get thrown in the drawer and nobody ever uses them because they were just the extras we were never going to use anyway. <laughs> but they were a part <laughs> of the package to get the cheaper price. And but I think um, that, yeah, and that big lesson for entrepreneurs, you can kind of stand alone and, and uh, gosh, you know, that, that advertisement that Steve Jobs came up with, think different. <sighs> the only thing wrong with that is I didn't come up with it. Because <laughs> you you can you can disagree with with the majority of other people doing what you're doing. You can disagree with them, or at least bring another point of view. I think you can do that, and um, I don't know, and think different. <laughs> I I agree. There's no there's no one right answer. That's part of the greatness of entrepreneurship is. <laughs> It's the freedom to run your company, make choices that, that serve you. And and many entrepreneurs start meeting the expectations of their clients and allowing their clients to drive their business and their business grows bigger than they wanted it to. And they're hiring 22 people and now they're doing things they never wanted to do. And it's like, you have the choice. You can scale your business down, run it from a beach in Puerto Rico and, and build the business so you're working you know eight hours instead of 42 hours a day. <laughs> You know, you you have that choice, and 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 so many people lose sight of the fact that you get to design this, you get to plan it, you get to make it happen, and you're responsible for it. And I, I the same thing for your book. 
you've written it, you've designed it. Now you can still have responsibility for it through the entire process. And, and so that's, that's beautiful that you're, you're essentially coming alongside authors and helping them maintain the ownership of their baby. Yeah. I think what you're saying about it's up to us as to how big or small or what kind of business do you want to run? It It's very real. And I've had a business coach ask me and I was like, Oh, Oh, you have a choice. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> because I think, especially in America, we're sort of taught to, um, how do we grow? How do we grow? How do we grow? How do we get bigger? How do we grow? And it's like, wait a minute, do I want to grow anymore? What is the lifestyle that I want for my business? And so I'm, I'm coming to terms with that now. It's like, okay, where is my happy place? And um, I think that's real. I don't think we have to, how do we grow? How do we grow? How do we grow? <laughs> nope. You get to choose. Can I choose, please? All right. Thank you. Yeah. Absolutely. And and the great thing now is you've got a foundation laid. You can decide how much of this business do I want to be involved in and, and how much do I want to you know, pass it on to others or how much do I want to just minimize it so that I can work the hours I want to work from the places I want to work, doing the things I want to do and, and choosing to do the parts in your work that that fire you up and light you up and make you happy, you get to choose and you can outsource so much of the other stuff because that's a choice. <laughs> and and yeah. that's why you're in entrepreneurship is to have those choices. And so many entrepreneurs get lost in the minutia and, and basically just do their business and let the business run them instead of saying, whoa, wait, this is my business. I get to focus on it and I get to design it and build it the way that I want. And I think it's the same thing with a book. You know, you lost control of your first book and that's fired you up to help people say, I want control over my book and, and how my book is presented to the world and where the money goes when people start buying it. Yeah, I, we, we have to tell our authors, too. It's like now you are the publisher, right? <laughs> so we're managing your project, but you are the publisher and we are the advisor, but you don't have to take our advice, you know? <laughs> So if you want to name your book, who's he, what's it, Bubkus, you know, <laughs> I might give you some pushback and I might, you know, throw my debate on the table. But if you still say, heard you, still want to name it, who's he, what's it, Bubkus. All right. It's your book. Let their, let their cousin design the cover. <laughs> right. Oh, that is tough. I'll tell let, you. <laughs> let mom do the editing. You know, one one of the um, toughest things I know that we deal with, and I'm sure in other businesses, kind of um, similar in scope to ours, is um, they don't have the same goals as us. So we have to let that go. You know, it's like, okay, you want your mother who's a school teacher to edit your book? All right. Uh, <laughs> you know, because it's not our goal is to put out an award winning book for everybody not everyone else's goals so we have to respect that and, and let go and, and let go it's like it's like the financial advisors yeah you know it our uncle joe's the family financial advisor well what does uncle joe do oh he works at the meat counter <laughs> right <laughs> you know we, we we sometimes forget that that experts are alongside us i i'll admit that when when i let my book go to the editor and and come back and of course my wife edited it first which was even harder. And I had to remind myself, she's not bashing you. She's trying to make your book better. Stop 
taking it personal. Stop getting, <laughs> stop getting butthurt over red lines. And, and part of it was I wrote my book stupid fast. And then, and so now I had this, this whole speed thing going and I committed to 6,000 words a day over, over a seven day period to get it, to get it done. And then they go back in and they cut out 3,000 words. Like, like, Oh, <laughs> take the knife out. And so it's a, there's some lessons in there about, um, you know, the book is not you. <laughs> right. Right. Or you don't have your wife edited. Uh, well, that's it. <laughs> yeah. If you want to keep a happy marriage. <laughs> well, like you we we worked through it. I, I mean, I figured it out. So, <laughs> and she did a fantastic job. It really was recognizing that that she really was trying to make it better and help me. Oh, not, okay. not, not it was never an attack on me. It was just to make it better. Uh, so that was good. So let's talk. I, I love to talk about character and, and authenticity. And obviously you dealt with somebody of, of shady character, you know, early on. And that's, that's really impacted your business model and, and the things that, that you offer. Um, how important is character for your consultants and your coaches? I really work hard on letting them know that they can be them, their authentic selves. Okay. So we have a training program, right? And so I say a number of times through the training program, I'm going to teach you how we do this exactly like I do it the yellow brick road, here it is. And once you're comfortable with that, be yourself, you know, be yourself and do it the way you want. Okay. I'm going to teach it this way, then be yourself. And I'm very clear on that and have been from the start, because I'll tell you when I worked at hotels, okay, big hotel chains, and they would put us through these like seven day intense, like morning to midnight kind of sales classes. And this is how you do it. And it was so rigid that there was no room in there to be myself. And when you can't be yourself, you sort of lose confidence mm -hmm. and they can tell you're just a robot. Do this, then do that. And then look this way and then look down and then say this. It was like, ugh, Barfarama. And it's just, it's not authentic. And you can be as authentic as you want. I, I drill that into our team. And, you know, I think it's a different world today as well. Um, I don't know, like, especially with Zoom, everyone sees the cats in the background. And the <laughs> You know, and it's all you can do to comb your hair these days. Right? Yeah, I, I struggle a lot. Yeah, do you, you need a comb? Uh, but um, like I got my kitty running around over here. So it's it's almost forced us, the Zoom thing that we did well before the COVID thing. We were doing the really just be yourself and, and be authentic. Mm. But with okay. Zoom, it is sort of, I don't know, forced gracefully everyone into this authentic life. You can see the, you know, the dirty living room in the background and right. 
Yep. Um, and you think it's not that old. It's like, I remember even 15 years ago, you're sort of embarrassed to say you work from home, you know. Uh, it's a whole different world. Right. Like no one would hire you. Why are you working at home right now? It's like, you know, people are buying five bedroom office. <laughs> yep, absolutely. So you mentioned having gratitude for the time to take to write the book and, and grateful that it took you longer. What other ways does gratitude play into your life and, and your business? I think it helps keep you authentic, doesn't it? And I, I, I tell authors from the beginning, you know, it's like I try to explain what we do by saying, you know, we're your coach. We're your consultant. We are your good cop and your bad cop. And we will stick up for you. But I will also tell you, you know, I'm going to stick up for the service providers as well. Okay. And tell you when you're wrong. And what, you know what I mean? I am grateful to the authors that put their trust in us. But I am also grateful for all the people that work for us. And I will stick up for them as well. But I let our authors know that in advance. It's like, uh, you know, I'm sort of a the conductor right <laughs> and you know but i'm the good cop and the bad cop so someone says you know well this cover designer created 20 designs for us and we don't like any of them so i'm not going to pay him it's like okay bad cop hat oh yes you are <laughs> you're right. who's to say you're not going to take all of those go to another designer and say whip me up one of those <laughs> so i have to be good cop my point is in being grateful I am grateful to the service providers, our, our coaches, very grateful to them and the, the authors themselves. Um, I worked frontline service crap jobs for uh, <laughs> a good portion of my life, right? I'd always have this nice job and then a crap job on the weekends and nights and whatever. Keep you honest. <laughs> and so that front service frontline service you know you get you get flat out just just beat up you know and i saw customers throwing stuff at frontline service staff seriously throwing phones throwing um one woman just threw a wallet at someone and hit him in the head and all the rest of it it's like and then you sort of have to take it right and I always thought, I'm watching this throughout my life. I'm watching this go, man, if I ever have my own business, I'm not putting up with that, right? And so when I started my word publishing and I go to the contract attorney and I was like, I want to make sure good cop, bad cop, both parties can get out of this agreement at any time for any reason. So I bring that up in our initial talk, right? It's like... Why would you want out? Well, let's say you decide you hate me. I stink, whatever. Okay. <laughs> or you get this great deal at HarperCollins. Off you go. We're going to cheer you on. You're not stuck. Why would we ever break the agreement? And I tell them this up front. If you become abusive, threatening with anyone on our team, I don't care if it's, you know, cover designer, layout person, me, you know, we don't put up with it and you're out. And you don't get your money back. Um, and I state that up front. You're setting expectations. 
But I just have never liked that. And I want to be grateful for everyone on the team. And I have to protect them. So I kind of have to be a badass from the beginning. Well, that's the way the business should work, right? Even if we get upset and we're unhappy with an editor or, or a cover designer or formatting, like even if you're disappointed, those people have still done their job. And, and so obviously and still need can. compensated. And so yeah, you still have to take thing. care of, you got to take care of everybody and everybody gets a win in the end when, when we get to the finished book. And so that's, that's everybody's goal. Um, but I love that the no contract I'm, I'm similar. I offer, I mean, most of my services is coaching and it's, and it's month to month. And if you're, if you're not benefiting, I'm not going to force you to stay. If you're not, in, if you're not enjoying the relationship and getting value, you should go find another coach and, and another person to work with because the, the whole point is <laughs> to get value. And, and so you know, when I, I love a, that no contract idea. When I was a kid watching TV shows or whatever, and, and they'd talk about contracts and, well, you signed a contract, so you have to stay with us. And even as a kid, six years old, don't know nothing about nothing about nothing. And I was like, wait a minute. So why would you be forced to stay with someone if they don't want to be with you? Right. And I'm sorry, that has not changed. <laughs> you know. And so that's why I'm like, well, wait a minute. If I can set the rules, <laughs> then this is this is how it's going to go. So, in fact, we call it an agreement. You have to sign something that says we said we'd do this for you. Is that what you heard? Yes, it is. Sign here. Um, yep, but absolutely. you don't have to stay with us if you're unhappy. Um, yeah, so valuable. I, I mean, I feel the same way. Marriage has gotten to a point where, you know, wait, it's a contract and you guys are both stuck rather than the idea that, no, we have an agreement. And if we continue to add value to each other each day, we choose. And so every day I choose to stay with my wife. It's a choice. Every day my wife chooses to stay with me. It's not a you know, in fact, our relationship is strong enough. I know neither one of us is going anywhere anytime soon, but because we treat it that way <laughs> and, nice. and it's different, it's different than if you treat it like, no, you're obligated to stay. You, you're, you have to stay. What? No, the minute you say you have to, now it's about power and control and it's not about love and, 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 and commitment yeah, any longer. Right. And, and I think that's the same thing in business and it, and it can work in business the same way. If, if we have an agreement, I agree to do this, you agree to do that, and we do our part, then each day we make the choice to stay in the agreement. And when somebody breaks the agreement, no, we're out. And so, yeah, the contract thing is is obligating people to do stuff they don't want to do, so they're not going to be engaged. They're not going to want to do it, and they're just going to pout. And it's the same thing when an employee gives their two weeks notice. You know that you're not going to get the best work in those last two weeks. They've already yeah. given up. <laughs> And so <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, they left two weeks ago. They checked out. Well, they probably checked out a couple months before that when they started thinking about it. <laughs> so, yeah, contracts are overrated and, and overutilized. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what's what's fun is uh, I'm, I'm not even insulted by this, but, you know, someone will take our contract who's been through uh, three iterations, four iterations with contract attorneys, right? I'll say, can we relook at this? Or can we add this clause in or could we, whatever, okay? And so then someone will take our agreement over to say their husband, who's an attorney. And they'll look at him. Could you tell Polly that she should add this? In? Like they're helping me out. I'm like, hey, thanks, free legal, <laughs> right? 
advice. So it's been through a many of those attorneys as well. And they all <laughs> seem to want to help me. It's it's really cute. You know, it's like, oh, well, it's, it's like the Malaysians along the road. They're just trying to, <laughs> right? just trying just to take me. care of you. Okay. So it's really been honed nicely over over That's the years. Beautiful. So. so obviously contribution was a huge motivation, huge driver for, for your walk. How has that transitioned into your entrepreneurial journey? The contribution portion and yeah, uh, yeah. I, and can I toss in the word collaboration? They're sort of absolutely related. okay. Um, you know, again, when I train our coaches, our consultants, um, I urge them. I urge them come up with ideas of your own. Right? It's not like I. It's almost as if we've created this co-op. Right? I'm not nobody's boss. I don't employ anybody. They're all independent contractors. Right? I, you can consider me a mentor, but I guess I've always assumed that everyone's smarter than me. So it's like, <laughs> just because I started this doesn't mean that I have all, you know, there's a million other ideas out there. Come up with them, right? So doggone it, they have been. And now they start collaborating with each other and bring me the idea to help say, have we missed something here? And then I'll add in this piece. And it's like the little salt on top or something, you know. But you get all these editors and consultants and cover design all talking and throwing. I mean, this is a creative bunch, right? And so I have seen this evolve into collaboration and ideas. And we all have create classes together and, and it's almost become a co-op. So the collaboration slash contribution you're asking about has been accidental genius, <laughs> right? It's awesome. It's like not come up with that. I just left room for it to sprout if it, you know, Oh, I love that. I mean, the power, it's its truly the power of the mastermind when you allow yes. a, a group of creatives to, to, to function together with a, without limitations, <laughs> great things can happen. The human yeah, mind is know. designed to work that way. And so when, when we, when we allow it to do that and connect and communicate and create, yeah, that's really cool. And some people see, oh, these people just created that out of the blue. Oh, well, maybe I can do that. And then they get a little more confident. And mm -hmm. I'll say, yeah, why don't you team up with so-and-so? They know a little something about that. So now they don't feel alone. And then that's a mastermind. And they come up with something, pull someone else. So it's just sort of evolved into this think tank almost. So I, I tried to explain what we do to someone um, recently. And I said, we're almost like the Mayo Clinic of publishing. So we, you know how the Mayo Clinic, they get a team together and solve a problem, right? Because we don't do packages. It's like we get this weird ass book that wants a feather coming out of it and a front pouch and a spiral bound. It's like, okay, <laughs> let's pull in three, four people here and figure out what's the best way to, you know, produce and print and public distribute this you know, once of outlier of a book. And um, so we are sort of this uh, Mayo Clinic approach. <laughs> you know? Let's pull in so-and-so on this job. Love that. All right. So how important is play and fun for you and your team? Well, let's just say that uh, 
maybe a few times a year we have a party. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just say that uh, it's held all day and that people may have to spend the night. <laughs> uh, yeah, fun is important. However, we are located all over the country now. So most of us, a lot of us have never met. It's stunning. We marvel, all of us marvel at how close a team we are, considering a lot of us have never met. Mm. Uh, the bulk is in Denver, because that's where we started, and that's where our team started, and they're still together. Um, but whenever someone lands, someone not in Denver happens to come to Denver, you know, of course, that's an opportunity for another party. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we have... Uh, Games, we, we meet once a month online, and even then we have games. And, nice. And the collaboration makes it fun, too. So Love that. Yeah. that's uh, my, my business coach would say, I don't celebrate enough. No. <laughs> Fair enough. Sounds to me like you need to have another party. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Robert said so. <laughs> All right. Polly, what's the big dream? I'm still working on, on the big dream. And I'll tell you that I've been asked, but what are your goals? What are your goals? What are your goals? So I go to my business coach. I'm like, should I have another goal? Like, what is the exit plan, right? I want to get to this point and then sell, or I want to get to whatever the goal is. And I'm like, it's not clear to me yet. Is that okay? And she says, yes, it's okay. One, so that took some pressure off. And so she said, what you might consider is just the next goal, not the end goal, because I don't have that yet. I'm not real clear on it. And I've decided now that that's OK. So, yeah, the next goal is uh, it's just. Uh, frankly, the team, I don't want to grow for like a year. I want to get these people so tight and just. They're going to be master Mac daddies. We're about 75% there. And then we'll make the next goal. Is that okay? That's absolutely okay. Okay. But I do Unlike want to Unlike you, known. I don't have packages. I don't have expectations for people's answers. Okay, good. Good. I <laughs> think uh, one of my goals, my, I guess, uh, an overall vision is, is to be known as a, uh, an innovator in this, this industry, because when I started with that woman at the Panera, Barbara, who I said, listen, can I be your first beta girl? Um, I felt, seriously, I felt this obligation. I saw this new industry bubbling and ready to take off and soar. And so I felt an obligation to make sure that it gets taken care of and sculpted in the right direction. And I still feel that now. So that's a that's a vision that I have still. Nice. I like it. All right. So you've just spent an hour with that young author at Panera, and you want to leave him with Polly's words of wisdom. What would you share? I'd say if you, if <laughs> you mean as an entrepreneur or. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to throw out author. author. I could, you can leave it as an author just because that's your expertise. Okay. I would say. If you want to have a professional book, you need to get professionals involved. So do some homework and pick the right path for you. Mm, nice. 
Polly, thank you so much for taking the time today, sharing your story and your experience and, and your hurts. And, and, and of course, all your successes are testimony to your perseverance. So thank Thanks, you so Robert. much. Bye. If you enjoyed the show, please like, subscribe, or leave a review. We have a free gift for you at addvaluemindset.com. That's addvaluemindset.com. We've collected some of the best mindset secrets shared by successful entrepreneurs on our podcast, and we want to give them to you for free. addvaluemindset.com. In our next episode, Holly Duckworth is a trailblazing keynote speaker and applied mindful leadership advisor. As a contributor to the New York Times, producer, host of the Everyday Mindfulness Show, and columnist to countless industry publications, she works with stressed out leaders to create peace, presence, and profits.